We like to cheer for our kids. All right, we've got one more, one more quick giveaway we're going to do. We're, you know, we're, it's, it is about competition here at the City Life Church, so we're trying to outdo the ladies for Mother's Day. That's really the, the truth be told. So I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Justin to come up and give us a hand real quick. We're going to do, we found these Superman mugs. Aren't those fantastic? We're going we're gonna to give these away to everybody, every dad who had a baby since last Father's Day, but it's your first child. So if it's your second or third child, you don't qualify, but if, it's your, if you've had your first child since last Father's Day, if you could stand, or if you're expecting, if you're expecting, if your wife's expecting, you qualify. Come on, let's give it up. First time dads, first time dads expecting or had a baby since last Father's Day. Right there, two right there. Come on. And we're going to do that as a tradition every year at City Life on Father's Days. We're going to do something uh, for all of our first time dads, so come on. I'm just sore from watching them do those push-ups. I need some ibuprofen, just, some, just, just, just from watching, just from looking. Well, you know, if you've been tracking with us, we've been in a series called 24, and we're kind of playing off of the, the television series, and we've introduced this statement, this idea that we have a mission, time is short, and that evil must not win. And so we're going to kind of build on that theme a little bit tonight. We're going to be talking specifically to men and fathers about the mission that we have that is unique. And then we're going to pick up with the series, uh, and then we've got two more weeks in that over the next couple of weeks. And so we, the, the number 24 comes from these 24 virtues that we get out of the five great growth lists of the Bible. You can listen to the podcast to get those to catch up. We're going to get some notes online uh, this week. We usually wait to the end of the series, but we're going to get some up this week. And so we've been talking about these 24 virtues and then how they connect to our model of discipleship here at City Life. And so, but we're going to talk about fathers today. We're going to talk about men. We're going to talk about the unique role that we have. We're going to challenge you tonight. We're going to come right at you, right? For, for, for men, we, we like for someone to just stand up and just tell us how it is. And so, so we're going we're gonna to give it, we're gonna, giving you both barrels tonight. Come on, you ready? All right, so, so who are some of the most notorious fathers in Scripture? Who are some of the most notorious fathers in Scripture? Anybody? I'm going to walk around a little bit. Abraham, come on, famous, could be, notorious maybe is the right, famous dads, good or bad, famous dads, good or bad, no, all right, Isaac, David, Joseph, Noah, see a hand, can you turn me down a little bit, Warren, Eli, somebody else, famous dads, famous dads in the Bible, famous dads, Kevin, come on, there you go, I mean, hello, right, the first, Ethan, Jacob, nice, nice. Yeah, there's all kinds of deaths throughout the Bible. Some are great, some not so great. These are three that are especially popular. We've got Eli, we've got Samuel, and we've got David. Now, these three fathers share something in common. We're not going to turn to those textual references, but if you were to turn there, you would find that these great men failed as dads in some key moments. They didn't fail all their sons. Some failed all their sons. You could argue that David maybe failed some sons and didn't fail other sons. But all of these men had great failures as a father. So let me, I'm just going to pause here. Tonight might be hard for you if you're a dad and you've got 
lots of regrets. And we can't change that for you. But what I would encourage you, if you're a dad and you've got regrets, like these men had regrets later in life for how they fathered, one of the ways that you redeem those mistakes is that you share them with some of the young fathers in the room. So if you're a dad here and you've made big mistakes, then you should be finding those men that just stood up and got that Superman mug. You take them out to lunch and you talk with them about the mistakes that you made. It's one of the ways that you redeem some of your regrets. Psalm 127, 3a and Psalm 112, 1 through 2 talks about the sacredness and the preciousness that the inheritance of children are to us. One of the most sacred responsibilities that we will ever have as men in this life is to be a father. Great men still fail in fatherhood. May it not be for the fathers of the City Life Church. You can do great things in this world. You can have great accolades. You can have rooms full of trophies. You can even accomplish great things for the kingdom of God because that's what Eli did. Samuel did. David did. They accomplished great things for the kingdom of God. We can be great men who do great things but still fail at one of our most sacred responsibilities that we have in this life to be fathers. And we want to be a church that helps you avoid falling into that category. I want to be somebody at the end of my days that's described as somebody who championed those 24 virtues in my life. I want that. I want to be somebody at the end of my days that when I breathe my last and make it into heaven and God says to me, I'm hoping for, come on, well done, my good and faithful servant, that it's because I did some things. I fulfilled my purpose. But I'm just telling you that when, when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, which I hope to hear from him, I hope at the top of the list is the dad that I was. I hope that when I'm in a box and in and, and some funeral service that my greatest accolade is going to be being a father and a husband. There is nothing, I'm telling you, there is no greater accomplishment that you can reach for in your life than those. And so we want to give you some practical things tonight so that you can be on your journey. So I want to start a little bit talking about authority. I want to share with that a little bit. We're not going to spend a ton of time here. In fact, we might not even get to everything that I want to talk about. And if we don't, then I'll blog about it uh, this week. And you can get to the blog through the church's website. But I want to talk a little bit about authority because I think authority is misunderstood oftentimes. And the church has done a terrible job, I think, historically, as, as, as teaching a kind of authority that's unhealthy and it's not life-giving to the family. And so Pastor uh, Mike Cavanaugh, we were at the Elam Conference, was talking about leadership. And he started talking about authority a little bit. And that inspired some of these thoughts that I want to share with you tonight before we get into our text, which is going to be Psalm 101. So authority. I was talking to Pastor Jamie, who's going to be coming as the campus pastor in Williamsburg on Friday just to see how he's doing. And he was asking me about my weekend, and I said, I'm excited. I'm going to get to do another wedding. I did a wedding last Saturday, and I did another wedding uh, just today before church down in Smithfield. I love doing weddings. Big fan of marriage. Come on. And so, but I was joking with him. I said, I think one of the reasons why I enjoy weddings so much is because there comes to the part where I get to say by the authority vested in me, Right. It gives me, it feeds my ego, right? So then I got to talk with the Lord. I was like, you know, only judges and reverends can legally marry people, right? But we don't get a badge. What's up with that? I think we should get a badge, shouldn't we? On the job here, got everything under control. Going to marry these people. Just stay back, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe I'll, I'll, that will be one of my things I work for is, is badges for reverence. All right, anyways, that has nothing to do with the sermon. All right, let's talk about authority. Let's talk about authority. So the first one is this. Authority must always be life-giving. If it's healthy authority, if it's godly authority, if it's authority that's based on the wisdom and the truth of Scripture, it will always be life-giving. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, we come to a famous text where it talks about the father and the husband being the head of his wife. And the Greek word there is kafal. 
Now that's an interesting word because it does literally mean a head. So like in ancient times, if you were writing, you were talking about the head of something, you would use that to talk about a biological head. It also, figuratively, it means it's the head of an organization, the head of a nation. So it also conveys this idea of someone being in charge. But it also was very popular, popular to be used as the headwaters. This same word that means authority and in charge, it also means to be the headwater. So the James River, right, if you follow that all the way up, you're going to come to the place where you would call it's the headwaters. It is the beginning of the life of that body of water. Every river has a beginning that gives it life. It's the kafal. It's life-giving. It's no accident that this is the word that's used in Scripture to talk about being the head of something. It's not about being in control. It's not about having all the rights. It's not about everybody else deferring to us. It's about giving life to those people that we are responsible for. A person who is moving in a place of godly authority, it's always life giving to everyone around. It must never be controlling. All right, let me read this. This is out of Matthew 20, beginning in verse 24. Matthew 20 beginning in verse 24. It says, when the 10 disciples heard this, now what this is talking about is that James and John's mother went to Jesus to, 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 to try to get him to commit that when he came into his kingdom, because she thought it was going to be a political kingdom, that he would give his seats of authority on the right and the left of him to her two sons. And so when the other 10 disciples heard about this, they became indignant with the two brothers, and Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and the men of high position exercise power over them listen to what he says here it must not be like that among you on the contrary whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant this idea of biblical authority is not about controlling people. It's not about ma manipulating people. A person who's really moving in godly biblical authority longs to serve the people that they are with. Now, you find these other three kinds of approaches of authority in the world. Now, do we move in these as fathers at certain times? Yes. Positional authority is when we as a father have to say, I'm the father because I said so, right? And there's times where we have to step into that place as a father, but it should not characterize your authority. If that's what you find yourself reaching for more often than not, it's unhealthy authority. There's reward-based authority. There's authority where you get people to do what you want because you control them. Now, are there times when we give rewards to our children as a father? You better believe it. But if that's the way that you primarily get them to do what you want, then that's not healthy authority. Then there's punishment-based, obviously, which is the opposite of reward. Are there times we reward? Are there times when we punish? Do we believe in punishment? You can interview our kids after the service. They're going to say, yeah, we've been punished a few times in our day. But that's not our primary way that we have authority in our home. If those are the ways that you move in authority, you find that your authority is temporary. Meaning that you get them to do something in that one moment, but after they do it, there's no desire that they carry away from that moment to do what you want them to do the next time. 
It's just about that moment. It, it's temporary. It does not carry over. It is divisive. People who, who use these kinds of approaches of authority, the relationships, especially in the family, it's going to be division. And it is, unfortunately, generational. We teach our kids an unhealthy model of being a father and being a leader, and then it's passed on from generation to generation. Authority must always be about influence. All right, let's read Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them of the disciples about who should be considered the greatest, right? Because it's all a competition about guys. We wouldn't know anything about that at the City Life Church, right? But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles dominate them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you must become like the youngest and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? This is interesting. Listen to what he says. Isn't it the one at the table? Right? Isn't it typically in our society the one that's being served is the greater one? Listen to what Jesus says about himself. But I am among you as one who serves. He is the creator of of the universe there is no greater authority than jesus himself but the way that he leads is to serve the way that he leads is to be a person that influences the people around him this is my definition for influence influence is being a welcomed voice in the life of someone who values your wisdom recognizes your life experience and defers to your insight let me read it again Influence is being a welcomed voice in the life of someone who values your wisdom, recognizes your life experience, and defers to your insight. I want my children to obey me because of that. Because they watch me live. They see who I am, even in my most private moments. And as they watch me, there is a desire that wells up inside of their heart to want to defer to my wisdom, recognize my life experience, and to defer to my insight and when you lead like this it's cumulative you tracking it builds when you lead like this as a father as as they obey follow your instructions and then they experience the good of you leading them then a desire is born inside of them they want to do it the next time it's a cumulative effect that builds over time that really we're not talking about it tonight which is how you transition relationally as an adult friend of your children where you're not a controlling presence in their life but if you led them well when you were supposed to be a controlling presence that even in your later years they long for the wisdom that you speak into their life because they're hungry for your influence it's unifying and this too is also generational we are going to be a church that unleashes an approach to authority and leadership into our kids the ones that we just dismissed come on they're going to raise up and grow up in homes that are healthy and they're going to do it for generations to come all right let's talk about psalm 101 this is going to be our text that we dig around in tonight we'll see if we get to all six of these we talk about something here at the city life church called chronological context chronological context is asking the question when was it said and when we ask the question when something is said in scripture when it was written it helps give us insight into the purpose to why it was shared and so when we ask the question about psalm 101 when was it written we find the answer to the question that david wrote the psalm now david didn't write all the psalms that's a that's a a, a a misconception he wrote most of the psalms but he did not write all of them but he wrote this one 
And he wrote them at different times in his life. When you begin to understand the chronological context, and you say, oh, he wrote these psalms when he was hiding out in the caves of Adullam, it helps give us insight to the things that he's writing. There's some psalms that he wrote when he was languishing in his sin after his adultery with Bathsheba. It gives us insight to why he was writing what he was writing. He wrote this psalm as he was being coronated as the king of a nation. Now, we know he was anointed by Samuel when he was younger, that he was going to become the king. It was a word of prophecy that was spoken over him. But there was a moment in time in history when he became the king, when he was given the crown, where the throne became his. He stepped in as the actual ruler. He became King David, not because it was a hope and an expectation of his tomorrows, but it was the reality of his present. And he sits down and he writes this psalm. And you might say, well, Fred, I'm not sure this is applicable because I'm not sure I'm ever going to be a king or a leader of a nation, and most of us never will be. But if you are, I hope you'll remember me and take my calls. But most of us, right, we're not going to be kings of nations. But you do have a place where you're supposed to rule. You do have a dominion that's been entrusted to you. Even if you're a single man here tonight, you're supposed to have dominion over yourself. Every single one of us is called to rule as men. Every single one of us as men are called to be a, 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 a presence of authority in the world. The, the extent of that authority is going to vary from person to person. But if you're married, especially if you have children, if you have a father, you have a kingdom under yourself that God has said to you, this is your world to rule, rule it well. And so what we do is when we dig around into Psalm 101, we find in this, I believe, six keys to being a person of authority that is life-giving and healthy. Now, I'm not going to connect all six of these keys directly to leadership for the sake of time tonight. So part of what we're going to have to go through is just you're going to have to, if God put it there and connect it to this, this is his way of saying, do it because I said so, right? Now, we don't get to operate that way, but when you're the sovereign creator of the universe, you're allowed to say that as many times as you want all day long. And then I'm going to blog about it this week. Some of them are self-evident. Some of them might catch you by surprise, and I'll work on connecting those in my blog. The first one, again, I think might be a surprise. Let's actually read it before we go there. Psalm 101. Oh, I like this song. Listen to how he starts. He's about ready to become the king. There was one commentary I read. This is, this is out of the New Living Translation. In, in the King James, it alternates between I will and I shall. And so the, uh, this commentary that I was reading this week says it, it's a psalm of wills and shalls. It's, it's a psalm of vows. It's a psalm of commitment. It's a psalm of, of, of promises. It's a psalm where David is saying, I will do these things. I will, listen how he starts. King of a nation, he starts with this one. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with psalms. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When, when will you come to help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile or vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. Maybe we should make politicians today take this oath. Psalm 101. Come on. I will reject perverse ideas. I'll ask them to do that right after I apply for my badge as a pastor. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city 
of the Lord from their grip. Now, when you take out the overlap, I think there are six vows that David makes. And if we as fathers, I'm telling you, we're giving you something tonight. If you as a father will take these six, if you, if you as a man will take these six things and begin to live them out, you will be an authoritative presence in the world that is life-giving to everybody around you. All right, so the first one is this. He says, be expressive. Be expressive. Our kids are desperate to see us relishing in the wonder of God. That's verse 1. It gives us the first key. Be expressive. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 5. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to Him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to Him. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. He holds in His hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The sea belongs to Him. For he made it, his hands formed the dry land to verse 6. I'm going to keep going to verse 6. It says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. If you want to be a person who has healthy authority operating in your life, learn how to be a lover of God. Learn how to relish in his presence. Our children need to learn from us as dads. From our moms too? Most certainly. But we shouldn't, they shouldn't learn how to be a worshiper of God in spite of our example. They shouldn't learn how to be a lover of God in spite of who we are. As, as this is David becoming a king. He said, I'm starting it out this way. I'm going to be an expressive, extravagant worshiper of the creator of the universe. Now you might say, well, Fred, my personality doesn't lend itself to that. I, I'm okay with that. Your personality might dictate to how far you go. But you've at least got to cross the threshold of doing something. We cannot stand with our arms crossed when we're in the presence of a sovereign God and say, my personality gives me permission to do this. You have got to move further than that. This is one of the great commands that God gives to us as fathers and men. You might not ever be David Godwin with the moves that he has that we all covet as men who don't have rhythm as he dances before the congregation and leads us in worship. You know, I'm not going to be that guy. Many of you might not be that guy. But there's a lot between this and that. And you got to find your way forward. I remember when I made a vow of devotion to Christ when I was 23 years old and I first started attending the church that my parents were going to. It was a very expressive congregation like this one is. And I felt so crazy uncomfortable. Even just standing there, just in the worship set. It was, it was awkward for me. I'd never done those kinds of things before. So I appreciate where you are. And if you, if you struggle with that, I'm saying you have got to push through that. You can't let your discomfort, your fear of being conspicuous hold you back from being the lover of God that you're supposed to be. And so you're, you just have to take small steps, right? You just need to go from here to here. Just, just get them loose, right? Just get them down. And then there will come a day, as we call it here at the City Life Church, palms out. Right? This is what it looks like. You can do it, guys. Here you go. Ready? See? Don't worry about these guys doing push-ups. Anybody can do that. Right? And then, then you go from here. You ready for the next one? One hand up. This is where you get to. You get to about right here. And then every now and again when nobody's looking, you'll get it up here and you'll come right back down. You get it up here and you come right back down. Right? And the next thing you know, weeks and months might go by and you're going to be that person. You're going to be giving people a bloody nose that are close to you because you just get the hands up. 
you're worshiping. I am telling you, there is something when you engage your physical body in the worship of God that gives your immaterial self, the cryptos, anthropos, cardia that we talked about last week, the hidden person of the heart. When you help that part of you that you can't see that's eternal begin to worship God, you feel something, it awakens something. You do it all day in your life. You talk with your hands, you get animated when you're at athletic events. We understand this idea of using our physical bodies to express ourselves. Don't hold that back when you're in the presence of the creator of the universe, especially when your children are watching. They need to learn it from us dads, how to be a lover of God. All right, come on, number two. Number two, you gotta be authentic. You have to be expressive, you have to be authentic. So verse two, I'm gonna read each verse as we go through. Verse two, I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? I like it's the only time in this text that a question is inserted, and it's inserted here because he's saying, I can't do this without you and none of us will ever be able to. When you come to help me, I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. Too many children learn how to be pretenders from their fathers. He's not talking about never making a mistake. He talks about a blameless life and the Holy Spirit inspires him to give a clarifying superlative when he says, he says let's throw the word integrity in there because you don't have to be perfect to be integrous. If you're a person of integrity, you're honest about your failings and you're intentional about the change that needs to come. Our children don't need us to be perfect. They just need us to have integrity. They need us to be authentic. They just need us to be real. They need to see a dad that's not moving in and out of duplicity. They need to see a dad that's not one person Saturday night worshiping the Lord and somebody else doing something else on Tuesday. They need us to be the same person all the time, even if it means we're being flawed. Revelation 3.16, it's a famous verse. It's where the, the, uh, the, the, the letters are being written to the churches, and here is a letter being written to the church of Laodicea, and it, it says, I would rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And that verse, I think, is poorly rendered oftentimes because it's presented as hot being good, you're on fire for God, and cold being bad that you're kind of pulling back from God, and lukewarm is, is kind of this, this idea of a little of both, but I don't think that's what it means. This isn't unique to me. This is through some, some commentaries that, that, I, that I studied, and, and, and in Laodicea, they, had, they, they were known for lots of things, but two things they were known for, even though that's three, so I'll just put one finger back down. Two things they were known for. You have to be able to count to be a father too, but that's not one of my six points. <coughs> Excuse me. So Revelation 3.16, they were known for two things. They had hot springs that people would go to who needed healing. They were restorative and people would travel there and get into these hot springs. And they also had an amazing aqueduct system there. It was, it was, it was really modern for ancient times and it brought in cool, refreshing water for them. So I think when, when, when they were reading this in ancient times, they understood what they were saying. Hey, you got to be hot or you got to be cold. you got to be who God created you to be. Don't try to be something that you're not. The hot springs aren't trying to be the refreshing waters that the aqueduct system is, and the aqueduct system isn't trying to bring restoration that the hot springs are supposed to do. When he's using this word lukewarm, he's saying don't just step into this thing of being a pretender trying to be someone that you're not because that's like being lukewarm and you'll never fulfill your purpose. Understand who God created you to be. Flaws and all. Be who you are. Be authentic. Don't be a pretender. If our kids are going to learn about that, may it never be through us, their fathers. We have to be expressive. We have to be authentic. Number three, sexually pure. If we don't teach our children to protect their sexual imprint, we doom them to experimentation and sexual frustration. Matthew 5, 27 through 29. 
It's the famous verse where Jesus says, hey, you've read that it's, if you com- commit adultery, that's an egregious sin. You have a relationship, a physical relationship with a woman outside of marriage, but he ups the standard. He said, if you even just lust after her, if you just fantasize about her, in God's eyes, you've already committed adultery. Now, that's not intended to give you permission. If I've already crossed the line, you might as well just go the rest of the way. That's not what he's saying, right? Because that's a whole other level of hurt to the person that you're married to. But to God, he's saying, you've already crossed the line of sin. You've already done something egregious in my eyes. As men, they need to learn, our children from us, what sexual purity looks like. It cannot be that they become sexually impure sexually pure in spite of who we are and the example that we gave them. I'm telling you, if you are a man and you have sons or you hope to be one day and you've not read this book, you, you're not going far enough. I'm telling you, this is the most amazing book. Even if you're not a reader, you struggle through it. Vanessa and I read this together years ago. It's Sex, Men and God by Doug Weiss. It is a phenomenal book that talks about, we've done a sermon on it before about a year ago when we talked about oversexing and overeating and overresting. We did a whole sermon on sexuality and healthy sexuality. The pleasure center of your brain that's connected to your sexuality is impressionable. And so the world tells people you got to go out and experiment to know who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be like. And God says, hey, don't do that. And he created the pleasure parts of our brain. So he knows that how terribly damaging that is. It's like Play-Doh. And so people who do experimentation, they get all of these imprints all over their brain. And when they finally get married, their spouse is competing with all of these other sexual experiences. And it creates confusion. And, and a lot of people enter into a place of sexual frustration. God's plan of waiting until you're married is about protecting your imprint so that when you step into a sexual relationship with one person, for the rest of your life, they're the first person to make an imprint. When God says don't do this, he's not trying to rob you of pleasure. He's trying to set you up for success. People that follow his plan when it comes to their sexuality, they should be breaking the pleasure barrier. The perversion of the world should have nothing on the children of God. Okay, we'll stop there. PG-13. Number four, verse four. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will reject perverse ideas and I will stay away from every evil. Godly restraint is supposed to be a gateway into a life of God-honoring excess. We talk about this all the time here at the City Life Church. One of the things that's so confusing for people when they get involved in, 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 in operating a life without inhibition in areas that are unhealthy, they get confused because this idea of stepping into a moment and just casting off all of your inhibitions, it feels so right. Well, it's supposed to because you're made to cast off all your inhibitions. You're made by God to step into moments of excess. You're just supposed to make sure that you point that in the right direction. And if you point it in the wrong direction, it's going to be destructive. But when you point it in the right direction, it's life-giving to you and life-giving to everybody else around you, especially as fathers we have to be restrained in Romans 12 in Romans 6 12 it talks about not returning to be a slave to your sin and in Galatians 5 23b we talked about that recently it's one of the five great growth lists and at the end of that it says against these things there is no law what does that mean it's God saying to us hey you can do these things as much as you want those 24 virtues he looks at you and me and he said there's no limit to this stuff you be as generous as you want You be as patient as you want. And then you might look at those things and say, well, what's the fun in that? I would just say to you, he's the creator of the universe. And if he's saying that's the path to the greatest fulfillment, he might just know what he's talking about because he's a pretty smart guy. When we exercise restraint 
and the, all the areas where we're supposed to be restrained, it sets us loose to be extravagant in every healthy place. Oftentimes, dads who are so restrained in their remo- emotional relationship with their kids, it's because they've got excess problems in some private areas of their life. It's a biblical principle. It's a principle of the kingdom of heaven. When you are rightly restrained, you are fully free in these other areas. And so many fathers suffer from being extravagant in the places where they're supposed to be extravagant because they are poorly restrained in the places where they're supposed to exercise restraint. Come on, we're bringing it to you tonight. Both barrels. Verses 3b, 5, and 7. I'm not going to read all of those, but this is all about the company you keep. you got to be fraternal. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 is the famous verse that says, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company, it corrupts good character. And you see David here as he's about ready to become king. He said, I want to be a person of healthy authority. I'm not going to be involved with people that are unhealthy, and I'm going to surround my... He doesn't isolate himself. You see him switch. He says, I'm going to surround myself with good people. If you struggle with authenticity, if you struggle with sexual purity, if you struggle with restraint, if you struggle with some of those things that we've already talked about tonight, you get this one going in your life, I'm telling you, you're going to make great strides in all those areas. The worst thing that you could do is isolate yourself in your problems. There are men in this church who are willing to be your friend. There are groups that meet, breakfasts, men's groups, life groups. The life groups during the summer times are gender specific. You, if you're a man, you got to get connected. You will not make it by yourself. We are called to be fraternal. Our children need to see that there are men surrounding us that know us well as enough to know what the hard questions are that we need to hear and love us enough to ask them. Our kids don't need to know what those questions are. That's a mistake that dads will often make. They think, well, if my kids are going to relate to me, then I've got to share with them my struggles. That's the worst thing that you can do for them. You're supposed to lead them. You're not supposed to let them help you figure out your junk. You let us help you figure that out. Come on. And then you can, now you can say to your kids, hey, I've made mistakes. I'm not perfect. You with me? And then as the age of your children progress, you can open up the story of your life a little bit. Hey, guess what? They already know that you're not perfect. Can, I, can we just say that? They have already figured that out. But the details of why you're not perfect, you've got to be sorting that stuff out, opening up your life. It should be intrusive. Deep relationships that are uncomfortably intrusive should be first observed by children as they watch their fathers. All right, it's our last one. Verse 8. Verse 8. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. Men, we have a mission. Time is short. And evil, it must not win. It must not win. In 1 Chronicles 29, 1 through 3, we have this amazing account, this amazing story of David coming to the end of his days. <coughs> I'd have to get another halt here. Bear with me. All right, we're going to make it. I have this amazing story of him coming to the end of his days. 
And he's wanted to build this temple for the Lord, but God says, no, you can't. You've been a man of war. It's going to be built by a man of peace. And so Solomon, he says, is going to be the one that builds this. And so instead of David crossing his arms and getting a little bit angry and saying, you're not going to let me do it. I'm not going to be a part of it. Not that any of us have had an attitude like that before, right? He said, if I can't build it, I don't care. I'm going to help make it happen. You read in First Chronicles and some other areas of the Bible that overlap the history here, and it talks about how David went to work to build a treasury that he could give to his son to fulfill his destiny. He begins to reach out to nations around them for craftsmen to come, and he begins to set aside gold and silver and building materials. He knows that he's not ever going to be a part of it, and he's not ever going to see it, but he says, I'm going to make sure <coughs> my son fulfills his destiny. You might say, well, I'm not ever going to be rich like a king. I hear you. You're probably not ever going to be rich like a king either. The 24 virtues, <coughs> my voice is going, the 24 virtues of the five great growth list will always be the greatest treasure we give our children <coughs> to fund their destiny. That's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? All right, let's try it one more time. The 24 virtues of the five great growth lists will always be the greatest treasure we give our children to fund their destiny. You don't have to be Donald Trump to release your kids into their future. You just have to be the man of God that he's called and created you to be. And that will be the greatest inheritance that you will ever give your kids. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. This is out of 1 Kings. Here it is. 1 Kings 7. <clears throat> Verse 15, it says, Hiram cast bronze pillars, each 27 feet tall. That's about three basketball hoops stacked on top of each other. Basketball, ground to rim, 10 feet. 30 feet tall almost. 27 feet. 18 feet in circumference. So that's three six-foot people all bending in an arc, head to toe. These were massive. 27 feet tall, 18 feet in circumference. I'm going to jump over to verse 21. To Shurim set the pillars at the entrance of the temple. <clears throat> there was one towards the south and there was one toward the north. He named the one on the south Jacob. So as the priest comes out of the temple, it's the one that's going to be on his right. And the other one to the north was Boaz, and that would be the one on his left. Boaz means in him is strength, and Jacob means he will establish. Now, we talk a lot about the pillars prophetically, but we don't talk a lot about the steps. But that's where they were placed. I think that's a powerful picture for us as men who are endeavoring to be great fathers. Because it was the steps that took them up into the presence of God, and it was the steps where they came back out into the world. It was the steps that took them in, and it was the steps that took them out, always passing between the columns. If we have any hope of being the men that God has called us to be, to be the healthy people of influence and authority that we're supposed to be in our world, then we have to spend our lives constantly up and down those steps, constantly in and out of the presence of God, living my life at His feet as a great lover of God and continually going back into the world to be the salt and the light that I'm supposed to be. And every time I pass through those columns, I'm reminded that He will give me the strength that I need to establish everything that He's called me to be. 
Stand with me as we pray. Father, we celebrate your goodness tonight. We celebrate that you are the greatest father that we could ever hope to have. We celebrate tonight, God, that that you step up in front of us as men and fathers and, and you don't say easy things to us. You challenge us. You grab us by our shirt collar and shake us around every now and again. God, you love us enough to get into our face, to call things out of us that you know can come. Father, let it be that every father and man that stands in this auditorium tonight, that a a seed of healthy authority would be planted deep within the fertile soil of their soul, and that it would bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, let's worship together. Greatest love that anyone could ever know, it overcame the cross and grave to find my soul. Till I see you face to face